This is To The Point. A Rhino experience. Voted one of the top home services marketing and operations podcasts. Cutting through the bullshit and getting to the point. So this next group that's coming up, uh, I've gotten to know them pretty well over the last few years. Um, I'm excited to have them up here, and some of them are, were a little shocked that I called them an influencer. So here's what I mean by that. And this panel uh, has changed since its origination from, what it was, from who all was going to be on the panel. But the way I look at the influencer panel is I see things from a different lens, and it's, I see all those out there influencing others one way, good or bad. I see who should be influencing people. Uh, and so I felt like it's a good idea to put them on a panel to share some of those things. And I've got to spend enough time with uh, each of these guys to understand why I think they're so influential in this industry. And so I'm going to invite up. I'm just going to let these guys introduce themselves when they get up here. But let's go ahead and bring up our influencer panel. Welcome, fellas. So why don't we do this real quick, just do a quick introduction, um, make it short and sweet, and then we'll jump right into the questions, because for this particular panel, I think we had somewhere in the 70 questions range, so again, still had to filter it down. A lot of good ones, uh, the majority for the panel as a whole, and then I'll have a few for uh, each of you individually. So go ahead and start with you, Chad. Chad Peterman, uh, CEO at Peterman Brothers. We're located in, uh, uh, we have six locations across uh, central Indiana. Size of the company? Uh, we did 90 million last year. boy. Good job, Chad. Um, Ishmael Valdez, uh, Southern California, Next Gen Air Conditioning, uh, did 100 mil last year, seven-year-old company, all organic growth. Chris Hoffman, uh, CEO at Hoffman Brothers, operate in St. Louis and Nashville, Tennessee, did 80 million last year, and I'm chasing these guys next year. Budget says 110. Uh, George Donaldson, uh, CEO of Fix-It Group. Company now is 68 million, five years old. We'll be over 100 million this year, 100 to 120. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This is good. I was thinking me, that. Me I and Ishmael going to be. I didn't want to. <laughs> I was thinking I wasn't. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, so Den Denver's part of it by itself was uh, organic growth. 1.7 million when I bought it, middle of 2017. And we put a budget together saying we were going to grow 10 million the first year and did so with no client base. And the 1.7 they were doing was apartment maintenance contracts. They basically bought a name and it went to 30 million in five years. That, that's just Denver, but uh, that's all organic growth. Um, joined PE and we had now, uh, middle of 2020, we now have four locations. We're adding four this year. So um, two to four this year. So that's not organic, but our internal organic, like Dallas, we bought a year ago, and it was 12 million flat for five years. We bought it to 21 million the first year we owned it. You don't need to justify yourself to him. <laughs> well, hey, Ishmael, oh. who taught you how oh, to make money go. on that? You're not going to have revenue. <laughs> I remember when he's like, I'm 30 million. Yeah, but you're losing money. 
Ooh. Oh. Ooh. Okay. See, this is all right. We're already off to a bad start. Hey, by the way, oh, just, so, just, just so everybody knows, uh, the reason we were able to get Nellie's because George and Nellie are friends. So thanks for hooking us up with Nellie, George. Appreciate that. Um, so I'm going to jump right into this too because we have some really great questions and I want you guys to answer it because I really want everybody to hear the answers to these things and really try and keep the ball busting to a minimum if you would so that way we can get some valuable content out of this. Fair? Fair. Okay. It's all good fun. So number one, how are you training the next generation of leaders at your companies? You are not going to be the leaders forever. How do you get the next level ready to go? Um, I think they talked about it uh, with the any hour group. I think it has to be intentional. But your version, right? We're looking for your Yeah, yeah for sure. Version. No, I think what they said is, is similar to what we're doing, is uh, you have to be intentional about it, uh, understanding that the only reason that you're going to scale is, is when your people grow. Um, and so you have to put those resources in place. So we look at it from a perspective of, you know, yes, this technician has a lot of talent, um, but he spends all day as a plumber or an HVAC technician. So how do we proactively get him the skills uh, that he's going to need at that next level? So we have monthly uh, leadership meetings. Uh, we have a leadership academy uh, that we developed a couple years back where people go through different levels um, of leadership training. Um, exposes them to things, kind of gets them outside of their comfort zone um, to understand if that is something that they even want to do. You know, every technician, their dream job is to be the service manager. Well, some technicians don't want to or are willing to work on those skills needed uh, to be a great leader. It's a hold, I always say in our business, I need you to take off your plumbing tool, tool belt and I need you to put on your leadership tool belt. Those are two totally different things. So I think just working, being intentional about it, um, having a plan for, for growing, it doesn't have to be anything robust. It's simply just giving them the training. Uh, I'll jump in. For us, uh, our, our single biggest constraint to continuing to grow, it's not trades talent, it's frontline leaders, and it's people who can operate and execute well uh, if we enter a new market. So we, we said we, there's no amount of, of money or resources that's too great or that, that you, can over, you can't overinvest in leadership development. So we brought some people in that are far better than I am at building content and a curriculum around building the skills that are necessary for field managers to be successful, frontline leaders to be successful. Uh, brought in an 11-year veteran from Teach for America, uh, background in adult education, uh, brought in chief human resource officer from Hussman, uh, and we built what we call, beneath our HBU, Hoffman Brothers University function, one of those pillars is what we call the leadership foundation. And we took every single frontline leader in our business in 2022 and enrolled them in this curriculum, this competency-based curriculum, uh, where we're asking ourselves, what are the things we need, what are the skills they need to have to be successful and drive the outcomes we want in our business, and how can we equip them uh, with those skills. And so we've got a, a really positive response from that. People are learning how to, how to coach. What does that look like in our business? Uh, we're talking about business acumen. You're taking new, new field professionals who are now managers, and they need to understand financial statements, all the levers and KPIs that drive success. Um, so we've just put a lot of structure in place under that leadership foundation bucket, and it's, it's created good results when it comes to building leaders. We're good? Okay. So next one's interesting. Um, this one is... The beginning of the year has been the toughest, it seems, for a lot of us around the country. Are you experiencing the same thing? And if so, what are you doing to combat it? Jump in, Ishmael. Yeah. <laughs> um, dude, I'm, I'm literally working on my people on just their mindset. 
Like Frank was, um, I heard Frank and uh, Leland and everybody talking yesterday and uh, they brought up probably one of the best points. Everybody's so focused on numbers here. Everybody's so focused on numbers here and they forget that like working on the people's mindset at the beginning of the year, knowing that it's gonna be a downfall, for, you know, quarter one is probably the single most important thing that you guys should be working on is making sure you're, you know, you're getting them ready for the for 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 the summer. You're making sure you're having those one-on-ones with them. Um, I'm I'm constantly on group. I have a couple group messages in the company, and they're all with like you know top executives of the whole company. And I'm always always working on their mindset because I know January and February are going to be slow months, and we're going to make little uh, little money, right? But we're already ready. Uh, I'm already working on their mindset, telling them, hey, April's right around the corner. April's right around the corner. I, I constantly remind them every time it's a slow day, guys, April's right around the corner, Mar- Mar- end of March is right around the corner, it's gonna be a 10, 12 million dollar month, get ready for that, okay? Let's just, let's just make sure we love on our people and we, and we keep their, their mindset sharp, but the most important thing is making sure that you don't let them fall into a, uh, let them dig into a hole and then try to climb out of that hole once the, the demand gets here because then it affects your, your peak season too. I agree with Ishmael. The mindset of, of both leaders and your field people is super important. And have the mindset of being intentional, training, constantly about, you know, first off, adding value like Terry Nicholson was talking about and training your people. But the thing you should really be preparing for, and hopefully it doesn't come, but we saw what happened, and it's a historic trend. It always comes. We end up in a recession, right? And what's the biggest, biggest thing that happens that can affect us? We can only control what we can control. And a lot of people become reactive when the situations happen. And the more prepared you are now, even if it doesn't happen, the better you will be in driving sales at any given time. But I think the question is, you know, we've really felt something different. And I've seen it. People are tightening up. People are not saying yes as easy as they were in 2021. And that's just a fact. But can you control being a better salesperson, a better sales team, and overcoming that? Yes. Can you overcome somebody getting failed on financing and they have to finance it? If they truly can't find it another way, probably not something you can control. And back in, in 2008, 2009, when that happened, I remember approval ratings dropped significantly. Just before 2008, America's credit card debt was $408 billion. Today, right now, it's... 950 billion and people are starting to not be able to make their payments. So you can kind of see that trend. Look, I hope it's not going there, but if we're prepared and thinking about those things, we're gonna be better if it happens and if it doesn't, doesn't matter. But be prepared and have that mindset of not being fearful. By the way, you can grow your company a lot easier in a tough economy than you can a a soaring economy anyway. Um, There's many things that become easier so just don't be fearful by it. The ones that will fail are the ones that get fearful and pull back and start pulling back on the things that make you successful. Okay, this one's going to be for Chris Hoffman directly. Uh, you guys can chime in if you want to, but for Chris Hoffman. How does your call center handle customers who call in after hours given that you don't have on call? Uh, I'll answer, I think, the question behind the question, which is, why don't you have on call? Uh, 
Uh, and and here's, here's the reality, it's, it's what problem are you trying to solve, right? Everyone uses the language of we gotta create wins for, for customers, for our team members, for the organization. Uh, and when you think about an on-call policy, it's a sliding scale of who, whose needs are you trying to meet best. Uh, and if we say we're gonna run 24-hour on-call, seven days a week, 365 days a year, that's very customer-centric. Well, we're all faced with this labor-constrained environment trying to attract and retain the very best people. And we have to ask ourselves, why can't we say there's no on-call? Why can't we say when you get home at seven o'clock, you're home with your family, and if something happens after hours, uh, we'll call that customer at 7 a.m. and we'll be there for them and we'll make it right and we'll take care of them. And we might upset a few customers, but the way I look at it, when I think of those three groups, the win that we're driving for our team members is so great, I'm willing to have a few upset customers. That's an amazing answer. I don't have nothing to say. That's, you can't say anything to him. Yeah. It works. I went over to Chris's shop, was that last, last year, a year ago, and he said, well, we don't have on-call. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he goes, we just don't have on-call. And I said, okay, well, I must be dumb. You're going to need to explain this to me. <laughs> um, and so we transformed last year into we don't have on-call either, and it's one of the greatest things ever. Thank you, Chris. And the, the, not not only do we not have on call at Next Gen Air, we don't have we don't work on we don't work on Sundays either. And it's back to that, um, you know, what what kind of drives me to keep the business going is making sure our people are happy, right? We haven't had a we haven't opened a Sunday in like two three years. We haven't had on call for two three years. Last year we grew forty one million dollars in, in in all organic revenue. So it's not, it, it, the customers could wait, right? It's not like we're firefighters, like. Unless it, the, the house is going to explode and you want to get out there. But it's, other than that, like, they don't have heat. We could get there later on tomorrow, and we got to take care of our clients. The next morning when the technician shows up and they got eight hours of sleep and they're ready to go, they'll make up for the two, three calls that they missed uh, at 9, 10 p.m. that were bullshit calls. I'm pretty sure here in Phoenix the last two days where it's been freezing temperatures, there's been some fires. <laughs> there's been some urgency in calls. Uh, I have, a, I have okay. a different perspective on that. Um, okay. And I, we acquired a company in, um, you know, here in Arizona, and we were having this discussion yesterday, and they don't have on-call. And, you know, the thing is, is yes, it can be a pain in the ass. There's, there's different ways to overcome it. Um, one, you could even hire somebody who just for on-call, who wants those hours, um, and they're always on-call, but that's kind of their shift. But there's something to... Um, and, and we use this in, in objection handling and, and, and our sales process. When I'm telling Mrs. Smith, hey, look, Mrs. Smith, tonight here in Arizona, you haven't spent your money yet. But if you're bored tonight at 11 o'clock, call anybody in the phone book you want to. We'll answer the phone and tell them, whoever answers the phone, if anybody does, it'll be either be an answering service who will tell you somebody will call you back tomorrow or most likely get a voicemail and your system's not working that you paid a lot of money for. We will tell you we're on our way to come fix it if you tell us we installed your system. You could test this tonight. This is something you can test before you spend your money because once you spend your money, when's it gonna break? When it's super hot outside and they have new paying clients and you know they're probably not gonna come on the hottest day of the year and tonight's not the hottest or coldest night of the year. It's not Christmas. If it were, we would still be coming and most of the time, people will just hear that and believe it. And, but if they, if they tried it in our other markets, that would absolutely be true. They'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who would come. And I've learned, I've found, we've sold more jobs just saying that than total calls will run in a year or so. 
Yes, it, it's a, the on-call thing, the on-call bitch is a pain in the ass, but in my opinion, it's, it's worth, if you, if, you, if you use these right and serve the client, serving the client's a big deal to me as well, but I could tell the client this is what's gonna happen before they'll hear that, see it, understand it. Now it's not about price anymore. Got it. This next question is for you, Chad. SmartAC.com. SmartAC.com. If you haven't heard of it, you better find out. If you haven't implemented it, you better check it out. You have to get started doing something. 2024 is going to be an absolute battlefield. What are you doing differently than your competitors? You need to make sure that your memberships are sticky. SmartAC.com does that. Lifetime warranty, insurance savings, filter discounts, 24-7 monitoring that lets you know about problems before the homeowner might even know about the problem. Live tech chat, service providers, all of this with smartac.com. You've got to check it out now. You guys only have one mic over there? Yeah, there's one down Okay. Um, what advice would you give to a plumbing company trying to build a tech training program that doesn't have the budget to hire a full-time trainer? Well, a um, couple different things. I think first, um, when you're thinking about any training program, especially as it relates to technicians, um, I think you need to get really clear on where it is that you want to go. And what do I mean by that? I think that... Too often, and it has been, which is a good thing, over the last couple of years, this has really caught some steam as far as these training programs and schools and, oh, this is a really cool idea and, and, and awesome stuff. And it is, for sure, and it serves a purpose. Um, but the only, the only way or the only reason to start a school is if you're going somewhere that's really big in the future. If you're just, you know happy where you are and, and, you know, kind of that slow growth is kind of what you want, then I wouldn't, wouldn't advise it. Um, if you're looking for a training program that can go along, so we use um, Nextstar's Nextech curriculum, um, which they developed. Um, it was actually intended uh, to be a, um, to be kind of a train as you go um, we kind of manipulated it into our model, but um, it, it's got great content um, there. So I think you can do that. We're also experimenting with uh, one of our locations that's a, around two and a half hours away, and we can't get students in um, for, the, for the entire time. And so we're, we're um, testing using um, really an online platform um, that they use, and then one of the field supervisors or whatever it is, um, is able to test on that in that particular location. So I think you've got a number of different options, but again, I think the biggest thing is, is being really clear on where it is that you want to take your company. And is a school one of those levers that you need to pull, or can you get to wherever you're going without taking that overhead burden? Because it's not cheap for sure. Um, the way we do it at uh, NextGen, um, we run channels on the technicians, so we don't have a, we don't have a per se a trainer. I think we have like 150 technicians, maybe uh, each uh, each of the project managers, which are sales guys, have three technicians under them, and we call that a channel manager, and they get incentivized to to train and to produce for those three technicians. Every channel manager gets a level one, level two, and a level three technicians, and uh, and that's how we get get around the 
the having like one or two trainers per, for the whole company. So we have a service manager and then the service manager manages the channel managers and the channel managers each have three technicians and that's how we get our, that's how we get our training um, more concentrated per technician instead of having one service manager, one training manager for the whole company, right? They only get, you know, uh, the diluted part of the training and the, instead we came up with these channel positions and it's been working pretty good. Anybody else? We good? Okay. So this next question is for uh, Chris. When deciding to evergreen a new location, what are your top three requirements the location must have? Yeah, for a little context for everybody, we decided in 2020 um, to, we we're gonna go to a new market and we were gonna greenfield, weren't gonna buy a business. Uh, so we opened an office in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, it was either stupid or, or crazy, but I, I said, we're gonna assume success. We bought a 20,000 square foot uh, warehouse about a mile east of downtown, uh, relocated a core group of leaders down there. And uh, from 2020, September of 2020, this year we're budgeted to do a little over 15 uh, million dollars there, over 50% gross margins uh, from day one. And it took about two and a half, a little over two and a half million dollars to get there. Uh, which I think is a really, really remarkable result and efficient use, use of our growth capital. Uh, particularly when we don't have a, a partner, we have to be really mindful of the dollars we do have and how we're investing them. Uh, so what do we look for in a new market? A uh, couple of things, a couple of comments I'll make. One, uh, when we go to a new market, and since we're not buying a business, we have to be really mindful of the customer acquisition costs, acquiring customers and getting calls. So we'll look at uh, paid search campaigns, uh, we use some, uh, some of those tools as a proxy for customer acquisition costs. So if it's somebody yesterday was telling me it was $220 a click in Sacramento in summer, uh, we don't want to go to Sacramento because I can find other markets, what we'll call tier two markets, where I can get a customer for a lot, uh, lot less expensively. So customer acquisition cost is really important. We'll do research there. The second bucket is around what I'll call like the ease of doing business and the licensing climate. I can go to Nashville and under one license hire 10,000 people, right? You go to a market like St. Louis, Every individual needs a license. There's complexities. There's barriers. So let's let's make sure if we're going to choose to go somewhere, let's pick somewhere where it's easy, uh, where it's easy to navigate that stuff. Uh, so that's the second bucket. And the third is just, a, I'll say generically, some demographic information, uh, home ownership rates, median household incomes. Uh, those things matter. So we've we've weighted all those variables, about nine of them. Uh, and we, we grab publicly available MSA data and we put them into this little, little model we created. It helps us come up with an objective way to say why a city is attractive or why it isn't. So it's helped us pick our, our, our third and fourth markets that we want to go to. I wish I was as smart as um, Chris when we looked at opening up new locations. We have nine locations in Southern California. What I look at is just making. I put myself in the in in our client in our in our um, in our um, employee shoes. Right? Like, do I really want to fucking drive two hours to, you know, this to be a plumber, right? To be an air conditioning guy? No, right? So what I do is I look at the location of where I'm going to put them, and I try to do 45 minutes to an hour from location. So when we're hiring people, if they live in Riverside and they don't want to drive to Orange County because it's an hour and a half, two hours drive uh, when there's traffic, right? So we try to pop locations based on, obviously, the population and all that. But I try to facilitate it so I can hire extremely high talent, talent that doesn't want to drive at 7 in the morning for the weekly trainings, right? Uh, two hours, you know? So we'll pop in a location if we know that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, county's growing order. Got it. Okay. So, uh, Chris, you had mentioned uh, you're talking about your gross margins uh, in your new location. Congratulations. Um, this is a question around margins. It says, what are your margins on repair and replacement? 
And is that factored before or after labor? I'll answer really just shortly. Uh, I think by definition, gross margin includes direct labor, direct materials. Um, so on HVAC replacement, uh, we're budgeting 49 this year. We're typically between 48 and 50. Uh, the big driver there is in the shoulder seasons when we are allowed discounting from book price. How much discounting are we doing? That'll really affect uh, the year and outcome. On the service side, we want much higher gross margins. In an ideal world, I'd love to say we have 60% gross margins consistently, tend to be between 55 and 60 uh, on the service side. Nobody else wants to add to that? <laughs> um, we, we're, I think we're blended like around 44, 45%, and that's just because we pay way too much. I guarantee you probably pay more than anybody in this room, including Leland. Um, but that's, it's 45, 46%, just we pay the most, we advertise that we pay the most, we wanna pay the most, because we wanna drive that high talent. Yeah, so we run uh, HVAC install. That's uh, kind of how we got started. It's about 65% of our business. We run about 57% on new install. Um, some keys to that for us. We didn't used to do that. We used to run about 48. Um, keys are financing. So you got to find a good financing partner um, that can reduce those rates. We used to use what all the distributors pushed out there, your Wells Fargo, 0%, and then you're paying 17 uh, our financing fees used to run at about 8%. I think last month they were at like 1.3% of total sales, and we finance about 85% of all of our installs. So that's a key. And talk to your, get multiple brands that you can leverage them against each other. Um, you know, yes, we have size, but... Um, that has been a big driver for us is driving down equipment costs because with all these price increases and different stuff like that, you've got to have options and you've got to be able to leverage them against each other when they come to you and say, hey, you know, you got a price increase. Uh, my line to them is we don't participate in price increases. Um, and that's just how you have to be if you want to hold hold that margin. So those are two things that have really, really helped us out. And that transformation really has just been over the last really three years um, where we're able to have really able to uh, increase those. Hey, who helped you with a lot of that financing? Good leap. Oh, okay. Forgot to throw that out there. Uh, ours is us. So blended, it's 57%. Our book price on equipment, 65%. And some people say this differently, so I'm just going to say, when we say gross margin, that's what's left over cost of sale. So when I say our book price is 65%, that means the total cost of the sale, all labor, sales commissions, um, everything is 35% is our book price. Um, but we end up at 57% between service and install overall. Say it again. Uh, the, the burden... Um, workers' comp, payroll? I don't. I do not. But in financing, somebody mentioned financing. I'm also not including financing's above the line, so I'm saying that after, after net sale. Well, George, this one, next one's towards you. So uh, this one is, when acquiring companies, what does that onboarding process look like? How do you work to get everyone up to speed on the processes that you are requiring? Um, you know, they're all different. It's really hard to answer that. Really, we, we, we don't go in trying to change a bunch of stuff. And it, it also depends on 
what the situation is with who was running it. Is it the owner who was retiring? The last couple we acquired was that. Um, is it the same person who's been running it? We'll just keep running it. You're basically going to be on a call once a week, and you're going to determine, such as like that conversation I was having yesterday, I'm not going to make him add on call. He'll choose to do that if he thinks it's best for him. I'll give him all the reasons I think it is and show him proof of it, but I'm not going to make him. I don't micromanage him. And um, the, really the only change, if it's the same person running it, is they're on a call once a week, and we're just teaching and we're also learning. We, I always learn things from every branch. There's something they do better than us. And then, I mean, there always is, right? So I'm always looking for those things as well. And we're just talking about best practices. But each branch manager typically, you know, is going to come to the conclusion that that's a best practice. I'm, I see everybody else doing it. And they naturally just want to do it. Thank you. This one's for all of you. Uh, it is. Scaling so fast, what are some unforeseen speed bumps that you've ran into that you wish you could have avoided? So, um, you know, scaling, scaling fast, we did 90 million last year, we did 50 the year before. So a lot of growth last year. I think we hired around 300 people last year. Um, and so the one thing that I would wish, if I would to went back, um, I would hire better people faster. Um, so what do I mean by that? So finding people, when you look at your business, what you want to be in three years, okay, well, what kind of people are you going to need at that level? And then hire them now, go find them now. Um, I always say, you know, I've got a lot of $200 million employees on staff right now, but the hope is, is they're going to pull me uh, to that $200 million mark. I'm not going to have to try to fight and battle and figure out things that I don't know answers to in order to get there to say, oh, I think I'm ready to hire that person. So I think it's, um, I think that's an important piece. And then also looking outside the industry for different perspectives. So this is the thing that's always been said. And sometimes when you're smaller, it's tougher to wrap your mind around that because there's such, there's such a connection with the frontline employee. Well, as you scale, you'll start to add these roles that they don't have to have the technical knowledge. They don't have to have those things that your technicians need on a daily basis, but their perspective is super fresh and it, it just looks at the business totally differently. So one of the big pieces for us, I've got, I think now five people that are all from ADT security. So they do home service, but they did it on a massive scale. So they've been able to kind of alert me to things that we're going to run into and that we need to take notice of now uh, so that it isn't a speed bump. So hopefully ironing out that road. So those are the two things it, around people is just get those people in there, find those fresh perspectives that can help you scale the company. Because as you get bigger, it becomes a whole lot more than just running calls um, at scale. And you're going to need those people to, to help you along the way. I would emphasize what Chad said. Hire the people that aren't just good enough to lead your business today, but are good enough to lead it five years from now, the way that you envision your business. Uh, that's been huge. And I would even broaden that to say it, it's had a downward. So this year we're budgeting what will be, we're hoping, our seventh consecutive year of over 30% organic growth. So uh, when I joined the business after Marine Corps in 16, it was $10 million, targeting 110. And the hard part that I've struggled with on that journey is a lot of these people worked for my dad for, for 20 years, 30 years. And they, uh, 
it, it's really tough when you see that the, the, what the business needs from their role, they aren't equipped with uh, to be successful in that role. And that's been a real challenge as you think about the talent that you have internally. What I would have done differently is invest earlier and invest more in the leaders that you do have to see if they can rise, if they do have the potential to be the leader that you need. Because uh, those are not fun conversations when you have somebody that's been with your business for 20 years and you're saying, hey, uh, we had a big push, we called it right leaders, right seats, and we had to do some, have some hard conversations and do a lot of shuffling. Uh, but it was absolutely necessary for the health of the business. But I, I asked myself, well, shoot, what could I have done sooner that maybe would have allowed this person to be a, uh, uh, be the leader that we, we needed them to be. The other comment I'll make around growing quickly is like in the back of my mind, what keeps me up at night is I don't want culture or quality, reputation to become a casualty on the side of the road as we just chase 30 plus percent organic growth. Uh, and so those, those are the things that I think about the governor and when to slow and when to press. Uh, culture and quality are always in the back of my mind. Um, I think the at the beginning stages of Nexion, the, the, the one thing that pops up to mind, because George is right, I was running a $32 million company, and I didn't know what gross margin was. You know, I was 29, 30 years old. Um, wasn't really, you know, trying to do anything with the business. I was just trying to grow it. Um, but definitely knowing my numbers would have helped me out a lot more and, uh, you know, educating myself on the numbers. And then the second thing that I would have done is... Uh, not being scared to, 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 to increase the prices as rapid as my growth was going. Because, you know, most of the people here are telling you, oh, just increase your price once or twice a year. It's like, because of your growth, we were growing 80 to 100% every year over year. And, you know, last year we had an 87% growth on our business. And now knowing what I know, I should have you know, it's not about, you know, once or twice a year. It's about, you know, if you're growing at that pace, you got to keep up the prices at that pace, too. So um, those are probably. And then and the last thing is honestly holding people accountable. I should have fucking hold. I'm sorry. I, I should have held people accountable at the early stages. So so at the later stages, they could respect it. Right. Because most people in this room and, you know. And they just let people be every day because, you know, like Chris said, hey, my dad, they've been here for 20 years. My dad used to employ them. I can't get rid of them. But you got to understand this is a business and not everybody's going to make it in the journey. And you got to be OK with that. So holding people accountable, knowing my numbers and and definitely raising prices faster as fast as I was growing. So those those are the three things I would have done. And something you've, you've heard a lot of people talk about today and and even in this answer right now. Uh, Chad and Chris is is leadership and, and being able to understand when to push, when to grow, when to, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm wired to just want to go forward as fast as I can, sometimes too fast, and you got to have the right leadership people in place. And and I used to argue with, I remember at a young age, argue with Jim Abrams, telling him I could make anybody a leader. And I learned, no, I cannot. We're all wired a different way. And somebody who has the God-given talent leadership talent, I could make a better leader. Um, but if you have a bunch of leaders, there's the, the difference between managers and leaders is leaders have followers. And the people that are under them get to make that choice if they're actually going to follow that person. If this person's my manager, the way he's gonna, and he's not a leader, the way he's going to treat me, talk to me, I'm, I'll do the job, but not to the highest level because I don't feel like that person's truly invested in me. And naturally, with leadership... A natural leader will be invested in right away. They're going to be like, I'm going to follow that. I'll go through a wall for that guy. And a tool that helped me, 
you know, naturally I, I, I've been super successful in putting those right leaders in places, but now I have a tool that tells me, do they have that natural wire, wiring or not? Uh, you heard um, Inia were talking a lot about the, the blue, uh, I don't know what that, um, the color guard, is that what it's called? The personality test, another one is culture index. Um, I've used many different personality tests, but this is so accurate and it's so accurate of who to put, it's a game changer. It was seriously a game. Out of all the tools I've gotten in 25 years in business, if I had to name the one most effective, biggest impact, most impactful tool that I've ever gotten, it's that. And once you really, it's a two-day training. I'm like, I don't need a two-day training. Once you really learn how to use this and really study it and how accurate it is is unreal, you'll get a lot more of the right people, even within your organization today, in different seats, in the right seats. And knowing what I know now, like having enough of those leaders to grow and scale fast, but having this tool to be able to tell me who the right people are, even among hiring our our, our success rate in hiring new techs and training them up is now super high because we will not put the wrong profile in a, in a truck. Perfect. This is going to be the best question to end with, end with. Are you guys ready for this one? And here's the deal. Because this one has been controversial. It's been asked a lot. It's come, there's different perspectives. So... I want to kind of get to the meat and taters of the whole question, and it's around memberships. So it's been said that memberships are dead, but what does that really mean? And I think it's worth having a conversation on what really truly is the value of memberships. I'm guessing this one's going to take us to the end. <laughs> Oh, this was your topic, baby? No, you got to start it. <clears throat> Look, man. Um, like I said, the I, real reason it was, it was a statement I made just to, you know, stir up the pot just to get people going. Um, I f there's, there's one thing about me. I question everything. Like, Paul Kelly is probably one of the biggest, most impactful people that impacted my life in the last couple of years. Um, and, it's, and, and, and what he's teaching me is, that, like... I love to not just be okay with, like, hey, everybody in this room obviously, you know, believes in their members, and you got to grow your membership, membership, membership. Like, we're growing it. Uh, Ken, Ken holds me accountable, right? Um, Ken, from uh, our president, holds me accountable for growing our memberships. It, it's not that I don't believe in it. It's just, okay, so is there a better way to do this, or are we just going to keep, like, keep doing what we're doing and hoping for the best, right? Like, not just in memberships, though. In, in every aspect of the operation. Like every time you guys run into a problem, all you guys wanna do is hire. It's like, that's like anybody could do that, right? Like has anybody asked, has anybody like thought about why do we have 20 people in purchasing? Or why is there APAR and all this accounting people when the software should be doing? Like all I'm saying with the memberships is let's talk about an open discussion on is there a better way to do it? And if there's not a better way, then show me, right? If there's a better way, more efficient to run the operation, that's what we should be talking about. It's not, it's not saying that, hey, you know, drop all your memberships. You know, it's not. It's just it was a question thrown out there to, to steer up the pot so we could actually think about like, what should we, how should we make this model better? Because I don't care if you don't agree with me or not, this model that we're running is a 30, 40 year old model. And everybody in this room, and we have the most smartest people in the room, should be working on making this model more efficient and, 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 and bringing 
right? The, the, the next model of contracting. So that's all I meant by the memberships I did. When this was a topic online, you know, you'd see a lot of different answers and, and some defending memberships and some laying out the cost. Well, no, look, you know, you're charging the client let's say $200 a year and the cost to run those two visits. And if you really break it down, you're losing money. And you know, what's missing in that is, is now, first off, that's maybe that might even be true if you don't have any type of sales organization. I mean, our revenue per call that we run that's that are just memberships as an average, it isn't every call, but on average, some, you know, a number of them turn into installs and, and so forth is 1500. So not, you know, plus the membership fee every time we run one of those calls. When your client, you know, the other factor is what does it cost to get a client? And, you know, everybody should know that number. If you don't, you got to figure it out. What does it cost me to get a new client every time I get a new client? And you got to factor that in because, look, you're fooling yourself if you think, oh, the client loved, I don't care if they give you a five-star review. It does not mean they're going to use you again or even remember you. Right? A lot of five-star reviews, let's be honest, is somebody standing right next to them did an okay job, and it doesn't tell you as the owner that your client is definitely using you again. Now, if they're paying a membership fee monthly, I would, I would suggest always be monthly and not annually because getting them to renew is tough. Um, they're going to use you when they have problems. And now I also agree... Is there other things we could be thinking about and doing? And, and, and you know, I do, I do love that Ishmael does that in challenges. And, you know, but it would be and, right? Add to it. I wouldn't, I mean, there were people actually discussing, yeah, you know what, I'm going to do away with the memberships. And I would not suggest that as a private equity platform, one of the first things, if we're going to look at a company that we're going to acquire, you're acquiring the people that are in the business and their client base. Well, the only true client base I really know is the memberships. I can look at who, how many, how many households they served over the last two years, and I'll look at that as well. But my first question is, how many members do you have? I know that's Leland's first question. I know that's Ken's first. Most, if not all, of the big platforms, that's one of the big things they're looking at when they're looking to acquire a company is, how many members do you have? And one more thing, um, I have a similar model with a low price tune-up, and Travis had a question for how do you convert that to a membership. So one thing is we, in our company, we actually do, we actually pull it apart and clean it. And we advertise the heck out of that, and we tell them, we'll do it for $39, let's say, one time. We will not give them that price a second time just to show them what we do. That adds believability and credibility to the marketing and makes them like, I, you know what, that, that makes sense. I'm going to try it out. So they know, and we're very clear in our advertising, it's one time. So when we go to talk about the membership, if you want to have us do it again, we, and we will not come a second time for that price. So then the client believes in it more and they become a member. The only thing I would add is I don't think it's as controversial, perhaps, as, as people think. And I think Mike Wilson had some good commentary on this. Uh, memberships are a tool to fill your capacity, right? And that's what they are. They're helping you to fill your capacity in whatever trade that it is. And, and if that gets you in the door and creates opportunity and creates a sticky relationship, uh, that's a great thing. But, but we do both, right? When we're, we have memberships, we do discounted tune-ups. It's about right. filling your capacity. And I, your comment, I think, Ishmael, is there's a lot of ways to do it. And, and just, you know, hitching your wagon 
again, just to the membership uh, horse, if you will, is, is not the, the end all, all be all. I will say commentary on memberships, we actually price them to like, uh, not, uh, I don't want to say make money, but I don't want to lose money on these things. So like our blended average membership rate, it's 34 bucks for the first system, 20 bucks a month each system after, thereafter. Our blended monthly payment is over 50 bucks, right? Uh, and in our St. Louis market, we have 13,000 of those, and it covers you know, 50,000, 60,000 pieces of equipment. Uh, that is valuable to us. We like that data. We can target that data. We know and we can quantify the improvements and closing rates and average tickets and how deeply we serve them across the different trades that we offer. So it, it works in our business. The one thing I would caution against is you, know, you hear all these ideas with memberships. Uh, don't react too quickly because you're conditioning your customers in your market and uh, to eliminate your, your plan or to make radical changes and to do that too regularly, I think can be really disruptive. So stay the course and I, I don't, don't, don't try and sort of steer the rudder too aggressively on those uh, as you think about your business. But Other, other benefits I'm going to say too is, you know, 13,000 members, when you're running all those calls and they need something, your close rate's going to be much higher. They already know you and trust you. They're not, you're not competing with anybody else, right? And if you want to add, you got 13,000 members, 20,000 members, and I want to add a division I don't have, plumbing, electrical, whatever you don't have, windows, roofing, whatever, that is the easiest place. You don't even have to market. You just add that to the benefits, to the client, and you send out pieces telling them, and then you can call them if you want as well. That is the easiest way to add on a, uh, a new division in your company as well, if you already have them. That's it. Well, so what I heard you say was it doesn't have to be or, it can be and. Well, part of being an influencer is also influencing change, innovation, things like that, right? So I actually like the topic. I knew what you were doing. We had this conversation, but it sparked up some really great conversation that I think was worth having a discussion about in front of a group of people. So hopefully that was valuable. Guys, I appreciate you so much. Let's give it up for our influencer panel. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much again for listening to this podcast week after week. We are extremely grateful. Again, the whole purpose of this podcast is to give back to the home services industry that we love so much, whether you're a rhino or not. We really, really appreciate all the subscribers. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please go in and subscribe and you'll get all the episodes sent to you automatically weekly. Also, we have really enjoyed your feedback. Uh, it's so meaningful for us when we get to read the nice comments that you guys put. So keep doing that. And if you don't know how to do it, here's what you got to do. You search for To The Point Home Services on Apple Podcasts. You click on our profile, scroll all the way down to the bottom and hit write a review. And be honest and share your story and how the podcast has impacted you and your business. Thanks again from the bottom of our hearts at To The Point Home Services Podcast. We appreciate you.